Welcome to Zen Bones, ancient wisdom for modern times. This is Mark Lesser. Why Zen Bones? Our world is in crisis and ever-shifting, and now, more than ever, more wisdom, clarity, and courage are essential, especially in the world of work, business, and leadership. Kristin Neff has been recognized as one of the world's most influential psychologists with her research and writing on self-compassion. She holds a doctorate from the University of California at Berkeley and was recently an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas in Austin. In today's episode, we talk about the practical applications of self-compassion for individuals, leaders, athletes, and healthcare workers. Kristen uses the word fierce self-compassion to dispel any sense of compassion being soft or a way of avoiding difficulties. In fact, just the opposite. Compassion, or what she at times calls resilience or building inner strength, is a path of both well-being and exceptional performance. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Kristen Neff, it's a pleasure to get to see you again. Yes, nice to see you again, Mark. Absolutely. I still picture our, we met when I brought you in to teach a search inside yourself. Be part of a, a, you were a guest teacher where we brought you in virtually into a class in Australia. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yes. And I, I immediately felt this sense of alignment and just appreciation of you and your teaching and your, and there was great, you brought a real vulnerability that was, I thought was touched me. Thank you. <laughs> the business world is still a little slower to catch on to self-compassion, but they're getting there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I still quote you. One of the things I remember you saying is that just that, that the business world still, I think it's not just self-compassion, it's compassion in general that the business world yeah. And I get it. And you, one of the things that I believe you said is you sometimes uh, will substitute the language of building inner strength. Yes. And which I thought, and which I thought was brilliant. And it's one of the things that I find myself doing a lot in the work that I do. Like I don't, I don't generally use the word Zen, for example, I replace Zen with being a full human being, for example. Ah, good. It works. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes, yeah, it's and a, not being a full human being. And not being a full human being. Oh yes. Yeah, and I think this is a good segue into compassion and self-compassion. And I've always appreciated the way you unpack what you mean by self-compassion, which is the combination of mindfulness common humanity and kindness yes which now i think we need to start with mindfulness and i'm and yeah i want this to be as useful to anyone listening you know i think this topic is so again it's one of those things that's it's easy to say self-compassion yeah but it's hard to practice it is well, one of the reasons why mindfulness is so necessary, and this actually you might say temporally the first step of self-compassion, just in terms of the word passion, 
in the Latin means suffering, come means with. How are we with the tough stuff, the difficult emotions? It could be physical pain. It could be something happening in one's life or a thought of inadequacy. The reason we need mindfulness is because we usually don't want to go there. We're doing one of two things. Either we're ignoring it and just pretending it's not there, just like soldiering on, or we're lost in it. We're identified with it. And there's no perspective from which to say, well, maybe I could use some self-compassion right now. And that's why I think it doesn't really come naturally because we're either, what is more natural is either to avoid pain or get lost in it. And that's why that really is the first step to notice. It's like if a friend called you and either you ignored your friend's call, because I'm not going to listen to my friend, they can't give your friend compassion. Or if your friend calls you and you just immediately just start talking over them and not listening and you also can't give your friend compassion. And I often use the metaphor of self-compassion as being a good friend to yourself. Mm-hmm. And the first step is to listen, which is mindfulness. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. No, I noticed that, that metaphor which is kind of the opening of your latest book, Fierce Self-Compassion, is that metaphor about yeah. why would you, why wouldn't, why would you talk to yourself any differently than you would to your trusted friend, to your good friend? And it's like, man, it's amazing how when people start paying attention to how we talk to ourselves and fascinating. And what would happen to your friend if you talked to them the way you talk to yourself? wouldn't go so well, wouldn't be very helpful. And yet somehow we think magically it's better for us. It's not a logical process. I think there's, I think there are reasons for it, why people lack self-compassion, both cultural and probably even evolutionary, probably the way our brain works as well. Yeah. There's a lot of parallel, obviously a parallel overlap and similarity in the work that we do. I have a new book that's about to come out about, about compassionate accountability. The title of my book is finding clarity, but it's about accountability and compassionate accountability. And the essence of accountability is noticing, not avoiding difficulty, not avoiding difficult conversations. Um, And I often go back to the evolutionary that we've evolved, that we are descendants of the nervous apes, that we scan for threats but not only externally, I, I, my, my theory about this is that this scanning for threats is internal as well. And this is why we need self-compassion, because we've evolved as part of our evolution to be checking ourselves, talking to ourselves, this kind of yeah. negative self. The inner critic is something that comes easily to us. It's very natural. and But luckily, compassion also comes easily. But of course, that mainly evolved for others, for our infants so that we pass the genes down or our group members. Whereas what happens for us is more of the threat system. Mm-hmm. That's why it's nice. It's actually not very difficult to do. It's just it doesn't come naturally. So we're kind of doing a hack. We're using the system that evolved to care for others, compassion, and we're turning it inward and we're treating ourselves like we would treat someone else. So again, we don't want to beat ourselves up for beating ourselves up because right. it's natural, but it's just not very effective that we know, just like with others, compassion is more effective than harsh criticism. Mm-hmm. Compassion, not meaning letting things slide. Compassion can be, hold people very accountable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and I love that, that idea in your new book because that's the biggest block to compassion mm-hmm. is people think they won't be, hold themselves accountable. It couldn't be farther from the truth. Right. Right. So I'm so glad you're doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that as I 
say in the book, accountability has a bad rap, you know, that when you, the phrase that comes to mind when you say accountable generally is lack of, or people think of it as that dreaded performance review, right? You're going to be held accountable. But to me, accountability is really about kind of a sense of alignment Mm -hmm. and not only aligning with others, but this, but aligning with yourself, like bringing your how you want to be showing up with yourself. How can you become loving, not only a friend, but how can you love yourself? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And we aren't accountable if we don't have compassion because we either want to blame others or if we're feeling shame shuts down our ability to understand what's going on. We just want to hide it in our hole and it doesn't help take responsibility at all. Quite the opposite. We want to hide. So, so, so I'm jumping in now to, I'm thinking, okay, I'm listening to this and I'm someone who is very self-critical. I'm, I, I'm very hard on myself. My, my inner critic is thriving. What do you recommend? What's the, what's the practice? What's the advice? What do you do to work with that? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing to do is we want to honor the role of the inner critic. Again, we don't want to think I'm a bad person. I'm broken because I'm critical as opposed to self-compassionate. And understand that your inner critic is there for a reason. It's trying to help you. It's trying to motivate you. It's trying to help you grow. It's trying to keep you accountable, trying to help you from making the same mistakes again. It's just not very effective. That's the pro- that's the main problem with the inner critic. We want to move from harsh, blaming, shaming criticism to constructive criticism. And constructive criticism, helpful feedback, comes from a place of friendliness, right? And differentiating my behavior from my worth as a person. Just because I made a mistake doesn't mean I am a mistake. Doesn't mean I'm worthless. My worth is unconditional. And from that sense of unconditional worth, then we're actually more able to work on our behavior so it's more effective and less harmful to others. And to the extent that we can, I talk a lot about myself and my books. I'm just wired, I'm reactive. I'm just wired that way. After 56 years, after a lot of mindfulness practice, still comes up. Mm-hmm. And so I just work with it. I said, okay, I actually, I'm starting to tell people ahead of the time that I know this may come up, don't take it personally, which is a th- way of being accountable. If they know ahead of time, I don't take it personally if I'm reactive. And I apologize immediately. So I'm working with it as opposed to, because I tried and I tried to change it. And whatever reason, it's just the way my neurons function. But when you acknowledge it and you tell people and try to reduce the harm of it, that's not, it's, it's a B plus, it's good enough. And so that's one of the things that my self-compassion practice has given me. It is somewhat better. So, com- so compassion does help you change. But to the extent, with those things that we can't change, and we can't change everything, it just helps us make the best of the situation and reduce harm. I mean, I tend to think that we're all amazingly reactive or vulnerable, tender. We all have, I think we all have incredibly tender hearts. And that, and it shows up, it shows up in, in all kinds of ways. I mean, I was even thinking how, you know, if I, if I reach out to a client of mine, right? And if I don't hear back immediately, it doesn't take long before I'm thinking, oh, I must, what did I do wrong? Like, oh, they're going to stop working with me. And as that, for me, as that thought comes up, part of my practice is say, how interesting, like how interesting that I'm thinking that I'm feeling that it could be that, but it's very, no, I've been, I have a good relationship with this person 
And the fact that they're that they're taking a day or two to get back to me, like be like, let it go. Let's just see. Let's see. Let's try and be more forgiving and friendly with myself around this, and not this my inner worry wart that can come up. Which of course is just trying to keep you safe. Mm-hmm. And so you would ask how to approach it first with compassion for your inner critic, which is just trying to keep you safe, and then the recognition that it's actually not an effective way. Because if you start, if you want to shut down and get rid of the inner critic, it's just going to rebel. Mm -hmm. So thank you for trying to help me. What would be more effective? Well, you might think what would be the most effective way to motivate your child or a good friend? And constructive criticism, knowing that, hey, I'm here for you. What help do you need? This is really the key thing people don't understand about self-compassion is it gives you the sense of safety needed to learn from your mistakes. Right. It's a truism, failure is our best teacher, and yet somehow we think we aren't supposed to fail. Mm-hmm. And we don't, we think that because we feel shame when we fail. But when you take shame out of the equation, oh, it's not shameful to fail, it's part of the learning process, then you can learn and grow. Mm-hmm. So just, you might, I just had a study just accepted a few days ago with one of my, who was my dissertation student, now she's Dr. Kuchar, but we trained, or she trained, NCAA athletes in self-compassion. She didn't call it self-compassion. She called it inner resilience, but it was all the same practices from the mindful self-compassion program. And when, when athletes, and by the way, their standards, they have to be the best. They might lose their scholarship if they aren't. So their standards are super high. So self-compassion doesn't mean lower your learning your standards. It means, okay, if I blew a game or something wrong in my training program, that's okay. It's only human. What can I learn from this? And it's like, like we, we use the metaphor of a really supportive, encouraging coach. What would a really supportive, encouraging coach say to you? Mm-hmm. And what we found is that it improved their performance, both their, the self-rated and the coach-rated performance. So it actually helps you improve. Right. It doesn't uh, undermine your performance at all, which is such a big fear. Yeah. No, that's great. What a great place to be working with NCAA athletes, which... I think there's a lot of commonality there. I would hope that business leaders reading that study could could identify with that. Again, this drive, this need to succeed, right? Like you have you you have to succeed. You have to show up as a um, as a competent. These days, it's interesting. Not only do you have to have good financial results and project management, you have to be a good listener and a good coach and a good mentor. And I get to work with people who feel like they're fit failing there, right? They're getting feedback uh-huh. that they don't. So it's great this if you could bring in a this the evidence of this study, right? If you can have more of a learning mindset, it actually improves your performance, which is like, wow, how great. It's also intuitive if you think about it. Well, of course that's true. Yeah. So I think because of the way we're wired, yeah. we don't think that way. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, as I was relating this to the example that I brought in about like my fear of losing a client, that the way to lose clients is to be afraid. Yes. Right. Like I always think if you're interviewing for a job, you're strongest if you get in with the sense that you don't need anything. There's no, you don't need to, it's all alert. What can I learn from this interview? And I don't, I, this isn't about, it's not about success and failure. That's right. It's about learning yeah. and growing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But that's going to help you succeed. It's like the hidden gift. Yes. Well, 
There's so many places where but my, my mind just went to three different places. One is it went to that you mentioned you're about to go do a retreat with around non-duality. Yes. I was also coming back to this word mindfulness, which you call one of the core pillars of self-compassion. Mm-hmm. And my mind also went to, it's a little bit like if when you're doing meditation, right, there's some motivation. You might not call it success necessarily, but you might call it, I want to grow, I want to develop, I want to be better at, at I want to let go of my Yes. The duality about fear of failure, wanting to succeed. When I then sit down on the cushion, I need to let go of all that. Yeah. It's just, it's this cultivating a kind of more pure learning environment outside of the realm of success and failure. Or am I doing it right, right or wrong? So it's interesting, these different points that all are, in a way, there are different kinds of, I think, approaches to mindfulness or approaches to embodying a non-dual way of being in the world. Yes, and that's the common humanity component. You were talking about the three components, there's mindfulness. The kindness is kind of self-evident, that's being a good friend to yourself. But the reason that common humanity is my model, and I didn't come up with self-compassion, right? I was learning mindfulness meditation at a Thich Nhat Hanh Sangha. And Thich Nhat Hanh was one of the teachers. He always talked very explicitly about self-compassion. I mean, thank God if I had gone to like a, a mindfulness-based stress reduction place to learn mindfulness, I probably wouldn't have been on this path. But this group talked a lot about self-compassion and also about interbeing. In fact, I actually wanted to call the third component interbeing, but I know I knew most people wouldn't understand it outside of a Buddhist context. So I called it common humanity, but it really serves two functions. One, it actually reduces focus on the separate self. I know a lot of Buddhists like recoil from the term self-compassion because they think it strengthens the self, the ego, and therefore is counterproductive. I really could have called it no self-compassion because when you give yourself compassion, what you're doing is, first of all, you're seeing yourself as part of this larger whole, all the causes and the conditions that lead to our what happens moment by moment, which is, if you think about having compassion for someone else, part of that means recognizing, oh, yeah, there are a lot of situational factors, maybe genetic factors, family factors, a lot of things that lead people to do what they do. You don't have to, like, blame someone as bad just because bad behavior arose out of their experience. Mm -hmm. And so it's less of an ego focus. And the research supports that. The more self-compassionate you are, the less self-defensive you are, the less ego focused you are. Mm -hmm. And, but also the feeling that we're alone, that this, it's this related part of the ego. When we have this false sense of egos, we think it's just us. Mm -hmm. And that that's, Attractive in a way because we have the illusion of control, but it's also incredibly painful because we feel cut off from the larger whole. And so when we remember, hey, we are part of a larger whole, it's not just us. Nothing's wrong with us for experiencing suffering. It's not just me. That's really really what differentiates self-compassion from Mm -hmm. self-pity. It grows in a sense of connectedness. It's not the opposite. Yeah. I imagine you're familiar with this. These are instructions from Dogen, who is the 13th century founder of Zen in Japan, who I think very brilliantly said, to study the way is to study the self. Yeah. And to study the self is to go beyond the self. 
Yes. Or it's sometimes translated as to forget the self. Yes. So com- coming back to right, self-compassion could almost translate to study self-compassion is to study the self and to study the self is to go beyond the self. I like to substitute, but he says to study the way, you know, and it's the way with a capital W. Yes. And, and to me, it's like to become a full thriving human being is to study the self and to study the self is to go beyond the self. And this is so much aligned with what you're just saying about this, right? The, your crit- criticism about calling it self-compassion, but no, it's the same. I mean, I- more appropriately, I would have called it inner compassion, directing compassion inward as well as outward. Yeah. But it's also, I wanted this to be in a mainstream psychological context. And I also wanted to compare it to self-esteem, which right. is a way of reifying and valuing or judging the self positively. Yeah. And so I, so when I talk to my Buddhist friends, I often say, just call it inner compassion if you don't like the word self, because that's really what it is. And the more you direct compassion inward, the less of a self is there. But we got to read. My, my goal was always to reach the person who wasn't Buddhist, who wasn't into contemplative practice, who totally. just is out there suffering and judging themselves. And I think the language is more effective for all people, even though it's a little bit of an oxymoron yeah. if you think about well, it. So. Well, it's interesting that the NCAA study is around resilience. Was it resilience yes. or was it inner resilience? How did you? Yeah, we called it inner resilience training. Right. Resilience enhancement, called reset, resilience enhancement and sports education and sports education. So I forget the name, but reset was the acronym mm-hmm. because when you have a failure or a struggle, you do a reset. It's like you give yourself some kindness, you remember you aren't alone, you kind of pay attention, you turn toward, you learn, you get constructive criticism, and then you're more able to learn and grow and improve, which is so important if you're an athlete. Right, right. I love, I was, before we started recording, I was remembering you use the expression building inner strength, especially in the business world where there's still some compassion doesn't quite ring true in a lot of business settings. And I, and I get that. Although I have to say more and more, I'm bringing in the, the L word love. What about, Mm -hmm. can you, it's not, not, it's not a romantic love, but it's a deep respect for the people that we work with. Yeah. And that has to start with us, has to start with yeah. this, this kind of deep love, respect for ourselves. So building building inner strength, building resilience. Yeah, yeah. It, I think one of the reasons the word compassion, people don't like it, is because it seems soft. And then when you realize that compassion, like being an ally to yourself as opposed to an enemy, that's actually going to make you stronger. Mm-hmm. But I also think, so, you know, my latest book, Fierce Self-Compassion, I talk a lot about gender role socialization. And part of the issue with business is it's kind of, even though more and more women are in the workplace, of course, that the culture is still kind of aligned with traditional male stereotypes. And when I talk about fierce and tender self-compassion, so tender self-compassion is about acceptance, acceptance of ourselves, of our difficult emotions, of our pain. The fierceness is about taking action. Mm-hmm. to alleviate suffering, power, motivating change, meeting our needs. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, males have been socialized to be fierce, but not tender. Mm-hmm. That really works against males. Oh, and just to be clear, I'm not talking about biological sex or even gender identity, but just socialization. So this socialization says men can't be tender and women traditionally can't be fierce. 
People don't like angry women. They think she's they're crazy or if they're too confident or too powerful. They don't like, they like soft, nurturing women. But it's like yin and yang. Everyone needs both. Of course we need both. And gender role socialization, I think that's really playing a role in the workplace. It's like a female thing. It doesn't belong in the workplace. That belongs in the home. Yeah. And that's such wrongheaded thinking. But so so entrenched in our culture, even at the subconscious level mm-hmm. or unconscious level, that yeah. it really stands in the way, I think. Yeah. You know, I recently co-facilitated a, a retreat for wildland firefighters. Ah. And a lot like, these were like hotshot, high-level athletes. And there were half men and half women. Great. And it was really fascinating. And it was interesting to see that I felt like the women tended to be very tender and very fierce at the same time. Uh-huh. And I think their image was that they somehow needed to be more fierce and less tender. Men, the, and of course, the men that would come to such a retreat tended to be tender men. Right. However, they often said that when in their work roles, they turned into flaming assholes. Yeah. And they didn't like that about themselves, but they felt like they had to be, again, I think the socialization of men in those kinds of roles, they felt like they needed to be. And it was like a huge, I think, surprising relief, like try on, what if you don't, what if you don't have to show up in a kind of macho barking out orders way? Sometimes that might be appropriate, right? And some, because these are people working in crazy, difficult emergencies and the challenge of how to bring your whole self, your full loving self, and at the same time, respond effectively in these very high pressured situations. Not so different, not again, not so different than NCAA athletes and not so different than people in the corporate world and the work leaders in the work world. Well, and also in, in environments of like relationships, as you might think of more traditionally about tender acceptance, that could lead to problems if the fierce aspects like drawing boundaries. I mean, so one of the reasons I was inspired to write this book, and it's aimed at people who are socialized or raised as women because it was just too difficult to talk about because it can, for what more for people raised as men, they aren't allowed to be tender. People raised as women, they aren't allowed to be fierce. So I wrote it for women, fierce self-compassion for women. But it also kind of came out of the Me Too movement. And if you think about why was it for so long that it was so hard for women to speak up, there's a, there's a lot of reasons. Some is just the consequences that or they wouldn't be believed. But part of it is because we are socialized not to speak up just to be tender and accepted. And that's just the way the system is. That's the way men are. And people aren't going to like us. I think, And that we aren't supposed to get angry. We're just supposed to be so forgiving. And that really worked against women. And so if we want equality and human rights for everyone, we need both tender acceptance of our humanness and fierce action to try to change unfair, unjust situations so that they aren't harming people. Both are true simultaneously. And it's really, again, the yin and yang metaphor works so well. It's like yin is like the tenderness, yang is the fierceness. Of course we need both. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy that we say that one gender, and then maybe the only way we can have harmony is in a heterosexual relationship. What's that about? (laughs) And what happens when that doesn't work out so well? So, Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I'm come this word fierce and the socialization aspects of it and the in a way the paradox, right? It's the paradox of I mean, I'm often saying that want people to be highly ambitious when it comes to solving real problems. Yeah. Right? Or it's like athletes, like you need that drive yeah. to, to not to succeed, to win, to want to win. But it's interesting. I've been leaning recently on my, I was, I was captain of my high school wrestling team. Okay. But a big aha that I had as a teenager was that the best wrestlers, the ones who were the state champions, were not caught by winning and were not fearful about losing in the same way that I noticed I was. Yeah. And, that, and that I got tight. I got tight by what, that my fear of losing or my desire to, there were even times when I would be winning and I would hold on to win and run out the clock. And it didn't, it was like, this is not, this, something's wrong here. I need to work. I need to learn. I need to re, I need to train myself to just enjoy what I'm doing and to see it as a dance and not so much being caught by success and failure. Yeah. And that all comes from ego identification, right? So I, and I, so I kind of separated it out. Again, acceptance is about acceptance of ourself. And the action is more about behaviors and situations. And once we start defining ourselves by behaviors and situations, are we winning? Are we losing? What other people, then that's where the problem occurs. So you can be as fierce as you want and try to like win as much as you want, but you don't identify with that. Your worth isn't contingent on it. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest differences between self-esteem and self-compassion is your worth is unconditional. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean your behaviors are unconditional. Yeah, of course, if you're harming people, you're, you want to change behaviors and situations, <laughs> but your sense of your worth as a human being is independent of that. Right. And that's when you let go of ego identification and you just, your value comes from simply being. Yeah. And Kristen, just so that I make sure I'm understanding you, you're saying that self-esteem is more ego driven. That it's yeah. Good. I mean, it depends how you define it, but this word esteeming the self, judging the self, am I worthy or not worthy? Right. 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 And, and that's about the ego. Yeah. There's you can some people talk about unconditional self-esteem, but I think once you're unconditional, it's really no longer esteem. The word is inappropriate. It might be unconditional self-worth. Yeah, yeah. But self-esteem is you have to be special and above average, or you have to be successful. Or you've got to be attractive, or people have to like you. And one of the things the research shows pretty clearly is the more self-compassion you have, the less your self-worth is contingent. Right. On comparison or mm-hmm. success. It doesn't mean you're less successful. Yeah. That contingency actually stands in the way because again, you get performance anxiety because if I win or lose, it's going to say something about me. Where mm-hmm. If it's not, then it's like, okay, I'll just win or lose. It doesn't say anything about me. If I lose, I'll just learn from it. No, no anxiety, no pressure. Yeah. 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 I'm wondering in terms of those NCAA athletes, any big mm-hmm prizes in terms of how it was that they learned or got this or saw this making this it's a big shift it's a big transformation from the usual conventional way of course it's all about me to that it's somehow not like how do you make how do you, i often think it takes many years of practice of mindfulness practice but 
sounds like fairly quickly, these athletes yeah. made a shift. Made a shift that you had real, you saw real results. So yeah, so Ashley Kuchar, who was the dissertation student, she did this at her as her dissertation. She was used to be a college level basketball player, so she knew the culture. And so again, really just framing it as how to learn better. And so and athletes, they like to win, but they, if they want to be better, what they really like is useful information that will help them improve their game. <laughs> That's really the bottom line. So everything was framed at as what's going to help you improve your game. And so talking about just judging yourself, criticizing yourself, it actually works against you. Letting go, of, you know, what, letting go of what it says about you. How can I learn and grow from this? They really got that message. They liked that message. And so, and again, so it wasn't really not using the word self-compassion, talking about resilience, learning, enhance, sports enhancement, enhancing your game. Then they were all in. There was very little resistance. The other big thing she did was she taught them as a team, including the coaches were there. And so there was a cultural shift. There was like cultural buy-in to it. Right. which is really important because otherwise I think the larger culture says it's all about me. Yeah. And that seemed to also really make a difference. Yeah. I mean, that's fascinating too, right? That yeah, it's both individuals, but it's also as a team creating what's the culture, what are the cultural forces? And if the cultural, if you can shift the playing field to become yeah. a learning organization, as opposed to, I mean, this was the, this was from, I think of the work of Peter Senge that he did the book from 30 years ago, right? The learning organization, right? That language, yes. that language was a break breakthrough. This sounds like. That's right. And interestingly, we had similar results with the healthcare. We have a healthcare training for healthcare professionals and in healthcare, the culture is self-sacrifice. You know, how many shifts did you work straight? And like, it's all about focusing on others. Um, and so training healthcare organizations to be more self-compassionate, re reduce burnout, for instance. That's great. That's great. Increases turnover. And it's the same. So it's the same thing. Because the lack of self-compassion is partly determined by the cultural environment, the best way to help people be more self-compassionate is also to help change the culture. Right. And it also helps you support the practice. Yeah. Well, Kristen, I feel like maybe this is part one because there's so many things we could do. Yeah, we could go on forever. <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to do or say as a way of closing? Well, maybe just to say that there's a lot of technology out there now to learn how to be more self-compassionate. I teamed up with Chris Germer, my close colleague, over a decade ago to figure out ways to help people be more self-compassionate. We have workbooks, we've got trainings. And so it's not just like wishful thinking, oh, I wish I could be more self-compassionate. There are concrete, empirically supported tools to help you be so. So if anyone's listening and this kind of strikes a chord, just probably the easiest thing is to Google self-compassion and go to my website as a starting place. But there are concrete, again, empirically supported practices you can do to help make a change. It's not just a good idea. It is a practice. Yeah. Well, thank you for your courageous, groundbreaking work that you've done about self-compassion. It's really important. I think it's really personal, cultural, societal, much, much needed work. So thank you. And thank you for your time today. Thanks, Mark. It's been lovely. Okay. Take care. Listen in each week for interviews, teachings, and guided meditations. 
You'll receive supportive tools for creating more meaningful work and mindfulness practices to develop yourself, to influence your organization, and to help change the world. Thank you for listening.